You're listening to Ready, Set, Israel, bringing you the latest out of Israel and the Middle East every week. Let's get into it. On Thursday, during the holiday log of Omer, Israel was shaken by a tragedy that left 45 dead and about 150 injured. In pre-pandemic years, hundreds of thousands of people would gather at the gravesite of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai on Mount Moron, north of Svab. Even with some COVID-related restrictions in place, 100,000 people were still there this year. Just before 1 a.m., people began to slip on the narrow stairs heading down, causing those behind them to fall and get stuck as huge masses of people filtered through. Those who were caught were asphyxiated by the amount of people around them, as emergency responders scrambled to get access where they needed to go. United Hatzalah, an Israeli rapid emergency response organization, is home to 6,000 Jewish, Muslim, and Christian volunteer medics that use motorcycles to get to emergency scenes in under three minutes. United Hatzalah sent hundreds of medics to the scene on Mount Moron last week. Today, we are joined by Gavi Friedson, Director of International Emergency Management at United Hatzalah. Gavi, I know this is an extremely emotional time for you all at your organization, so thank you so much for speaking with us today. Gavi, first of all, how are you feeling in the aftermath of this event, and what has the feeling been throughout the rest of your organization? Thank you so much uh, for taking the time. It's great to be here. Um, first of all, this horrific tragedy that, that happened in Israel on Thursday night, um, our hearts go out to all of the families that were involved. Um, many of our first responders who were there just because every single year uh, at this event on Lag Baomer in Mount Meron, our volunteers are actually the ones that provide medical assistance and are there just in case of people falling or tripping um fainting for the most part you know never in a million years did any of us imagine the unimaginable that we would have ended up treating a mass casualty event um, with over 150 people injured and 45 uh people who tragically and sadly lost their lives um so it is just this, this, since thursday our entire organization has really kind of been shook up especially the volunteers who are on scene providing the first uh uh, first moments of critical care and triage. At the scene last Thursday, it was reported how challenging it was for first responders to reach victims of the stampede. Have you spoken to first responders who were there last Thursday? What are they saying? And what made the circumstances of the celebration so difficult to provide care? So yes, I've spoken to several of our volunteers who are there, including uh, two who are first on scene. Again, they were there because we were providing assistance medically like we do every year, just walking around. We had our own booth from United Hatzalah that was there to provide assistance. Uh, if anyone cut or fell or you know was feeling like they needed more water or was dehydrated, they come to our booth. So we always have medics there scattered throughout this event. Um, but again, we never thought that such an, a horrible tragedy could occur. Um, what they were saying and what they were feeling was you know 1 a.m. when this incident happened at first they thought that it was a, a actual structure that had collapsed and it took about almost a half hour to really realize that it wasn't anything that collapsed but more just from the amount of people i mean an event that had almost 100,000 people which should not have had more than maybe 10,000 people and even right. less every year it's obviously always chaotic but uh, there was a very slippery surface on a roundabout almost when you come out of the exit and people started slipping and falling on top of each other and almost like a pilgrimage like you've seen in other countries on in you know somewhere like mecca and saudi arabia yeah. happened in israel um and again the most unimaginable happened where kids and and adults and people were just being really really just either suffocating 
um, and trampled to death, uh, literally. So immediately our volunteers and one of the head of our you know, chief paramedics were there, had to declare a mass casualty incident and request for backup and, and for more ambulances and for more United Hatsala volunteers to come until we were able to really understand what, what it is that was happening. And then even in those first moments of, of, of seeing, and I've seen the videos and I've seen just the, the aftermath and the different people that have read it, that have been writing posts about it, um, it's heartbreaking to see 45 CPRs going on at once, um, declaring, you know, who's going to live, who's going to die, you know, checking the pulse. And if there's no pulse, you move on to the next one, hearing the phones ringing of parents calling their loved ones, but no one answering. I mean, there's just so much emotion that went into this entire event um, and the evacuation, obviously, just, you know, trying to get 100,000 people evacuated while dealing with this area within that was completely, you know, just uh, a tragic spot. Yeah, it's an impossible situation. It's hard to imagine yourself in something like that. Um, for those of the responders that were there, what kind of tough decisions had to be made during that incident and similar mass casualty events like that one? So all of our volunteers are incredibly trained. I mean, we, we hold them to the highest of levels. I mean, that's why our training, you know, can be over six months. And we make sure that they're because they are the first of the first responders, they're, they arrive first on scene that they know exactly what it is that they're doing. Um, and even with our mass casualty training, but I mean, again, this caught some of our volunteers who have been there for over 30 years, people who have been paramedics who have responded to many terrorist attacks, say that this was one of the worst events of their, of their entire career, of their entire life, um, witnessing 45 CPRs happening at once, including children. Um, nothing can really prepare you for that. Um, I think the hardest things were, were starting CPR and, you know, within two seconds, the paramedic coming, checking for a vital and feeling no pulse and then having to move on to the next child or the next person um, and not even getting, I can't even imagine even just as a medic being in a situation where you're doing CPR, you're stopping, you're doing it again, you're stopping, you're doing it again. And every single time, you know, it's an X where the person is just is declared dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I'm sure a lot of them even knew each other and especially some of our medics have a lot of people that they knew. Um, and then in this aftermath of the morning, a lot of our medics have been going to vol- going to pay a Shiva call and actually, you know, sending their prayers and visiting the families as they sit Shiva this, this week um, and try to help bring comfort to those families within their morning and really, you know, say that they were the last ones to really touch them or be there with them and try to describe whatever those last moments were for their loved ones. So there's a lot of emotions going on with all the medics involved. And then obviously debriefing and learning from any mistakes that occurred. Maybe there was a delay when more ambulances parked. Maybe there was a delay more medics could have had, you know, more equipment or more stretchers or a better evacuation. So there's always something to be learned from any event. Um, and that's exactly what we've been doing this week. We're comforting our medics um, uh, on all aspects, you know, from the tragedy itself to their own mental health to learning from anything to move forward and be better at it. Yeah, so speaking of that kind of post-care, I know Israel's been hosting a lot of group therapy sessions for the first responders who were there that evening. Um, And I think Israel's kind of ahead of other nations when it comes to recognizing the need for providing that kind of support to emergency medical personnel. So from your experience, why is this so important and what has this care looked like for responders who were there last Thursday? So immediately at the event itself, we had um, some of our senior management, executive management from within our organization who have been to, again, 
that hundreds of terrorist attacks who knew that if they saw a volunteer of ours who was just breaking down crying, because this event went on from 1, 3, 4 a.m. and it was a long time. Um, it was a very small area to get so many people evacuated and to understand just the amount of how many people were doing undergoing CPR. Some of our volunteers, you know, were actually breaking down on their fourth or fifth CPR and our, you know, chief paramedics had to actually take them aside and move them aside and bring somebody else in. I mean, there was so much management that went into this that, you know, obviously we never wish it upon anybody, but uh, the level of experience that we're going to take from it and to learn and to move forward, but to be able to provide that psychotrauma mental health aspect is only something that is so unique to United Vitsala. Like you said, Israel is innovative and beyond many other countries and nations in that because that's exactly what we do. We created a unit that not only provides mental health and support to the people who are bystanders or were able to witness something afterwards, but also to our medics who are exposed to this every single day. Um, so immediately after we had, and we have videos of some of our own medics just hugging each other and crying on each other's shoulders and having that support system of a family um, and the debriefing, I mean, really just for the last three days, every day, including today at 2 p.m. in Jerusalem at our headquarters, we had two psycho uh, trauma therapists, you know, sit there with, I think, a group of 40, 50 medics from all walks of life, Jews, Christian, Muslims, male, female, um, and they all sat there and they all spoke about it and they all talked about it and we all learned from it and they all knew we had each other's backs. Now, it's again, it's, it's an, an awful, awful tragedy that no one could have ever expected, but it's what our organization does. I mean, if you look at COVID, just being on the first response and the front lines of that, of having to deal with just this past year of responding to every single call in PPE, um, the lockdowns, providing humanitarian support to all the families, um, helping with COVID tests, helping with vaccine distribution. Um, wherever it is, we're, we're there, we step up and we lead and we help you know, the communities of Israel. Wow. Okay. So as an EMT myself, I can imagine that being a first responder in Israel is a bit different than somewhere like the United States. And one of those reasons being the type of um, psychotrauma care that comes after events like this. Um, and also this might be partially due because of the history that the country has with terror events during things like the intifadas that had such a lasting impact on the country. So how has Israel as a whole handled this tragedy? And how has like the recent history of things like the intifadas played a role in the readiness for response? Well, Israel, other countries, like you said, are definitely are coming to Israel to learn from us. So, I mean, I think Israel's a lot to offer because unfortunately we have so much experience within, you know, the terrorist attacks and from the second intifada, the first intifada, different operations or wars at the time from the second Lebanon war to, you know, our medics are, are, are well aware, well equipped, well prepared to deal with all of these incidents, especially the rockets coming in from Gaza, down south, that community. Um, part of our you know, mission is to raise money for uh, bulletproof vests and for helmets to make sure that our volunteers are well equipped to respond to when that, when that occurs. So our medics are, 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 have their hands full, I'd say, from all aspects, from just the day-to-day, -day, you know, if a person's having a stroke or falls in the street, trips on, you know, just uh, happens to faint, everything from your, your typical 911 emergency to actual terrorism. Um, and we train our medics within their course for all of it. Now, when it came to this Meron incident, we're trained for mass casualties. This has happened every single year that we have our medics there on site. It's people are usually are fainting and, you know, tripping and the basic kind of first aid. Never did we imagine, you know, an actual stampede of people being, you know, suffocated and trampled on and crushed to death. Um, 
we were prepared because we know how to deal with the mass casualty, I think we're gonna, the whole country in itself is going from the, all rescue agencies, from the police. Um, I mean, obviously it's from the political level all the way down to the local level. Everyone's gonna be trying to figure out who to blame, but they're also gonna try to figure out how to make it better that this never happens again. I mean, the only thing that ever came close to this happened in 1911 at the same spot. Yeah, um, I read about that, yeah, that's insane. Right? Yeah. So 10 years since then, but it's not acceptable that we lost 45 people when it was completely preventable, unnecessary, you know, maybe there's this way, especially coming out of COVID to have that many people, you know, all squished together. Um, there's so many questions at the country and I'm sure this, look, there's one of the worst tragedies in Israel. So um, I think they're gonna have a lot, a lot of questions to be asked, a lot of investigations. Um, I'm not sure how many answers are gonna come out of it, but there, but I think people are gonna hold them responsible and, and the families are gonna request and demand um, answers into what exactly it is that happened and how to make it better and how to make it, you know, that it never happens again. And our medics are gonna do the same way. We're gonna make sure that our mass casualty uh, trainings include such a scenario um, of people getting squashed and stampled on that you'd never think of, you know? And, and you always think you think of everything, but again, life is just another day in this world where sometimes you get thrown a curveball but you got to know how to deal with it. And that's what United Hetzela does. They do Absolutely. step up yeah. to the plate every time. Right. And just roll with the punches. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. This is really insightful. I think it's interesting to hear about it from the first responders angle. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. I hope that we get to have you back on the podcast. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Gianna, for that incredibly moving and important story about Mount Moron. Now on to our second story of the episode. Last week, the Human Rights Watch published a 217-page report accusing the Israeli government of human rights abuses, such as apartheid against Arabs in the West Bank and Gaza. This new report was rejected by Israel's foreign ministry as quote-unquote preposterous and false, while the Palestinian Authority president, Mahmoud Abbas, welcomed the report as urgent. We are honored to have legal expert Anne Herzberg with us today and is the legal advisor to NGO Monitor and the author of the widely cited NGO Lawfare, Exploitation of Courts in the Arab-Israeli Conflict, co-author of Best Practices for Human Rights and Humanitarian NGO Fact-Fighting, and co-editor of the Goldstone Report, Reconsidered, a critical analysis in filling in the blanks, documenting missing dimensions in UN and NGO investigations of the Gaza conflict. Definitely very relevant for our discussion today. Anne, how are you today? I'm good. So to begin, the report charges Israel with the crime against humanity of apartheid and persecution. To contextualize the reporting by Human Rights Watch, from 2006 to the present, Human Rights Watch's coverage on the Israeli-Arab conflict was almost entirely devoted to condemning Israel. Additionally, this report specifically fails to mention Hamas's stated goal of destroying Israel, and Israel's dire need to continuously defend itself from threats from both the West Bank and Gaza. Anne, can you deconstruct the goal of this report and give us a legal perspective on its various claims, including the primary one that accuses Israel of upholding a system of apartheid? What does the situation look like on the ground and how does the report measure up to the legal reality? Well, <laughs> those are a lot of you know, tough questions. Um, to start, to deconstruct this report would probably take us a couple hours because there are so many things wrong with it. 
Um, it's one of, I will have to say, I've read hundreds of NGO reports in my day since I've been working at NGO Monitor. And I think this ranks up there as one of the most offensive and vicious reports I've ever read. Um, so it, it was a pretty shocking report in, in how, um, I mean, where's to begin? Factually wrong, uh, legally wrong, conflating many different things, for instance, conflating different statuses of the territory, erasing history, erasing the context of terrorism. Um, one of the really most egregious things in the report is that Human Rights Watch basically says that there are only two people living in this region, Jews and Palestinians, completely erasing the monolith of people who live here, um, Christians, um, many Israeli Arabs, they just did a study, only 7% of Israeli Arabs in a latest study that just came out a couple of weeks ago, refer to themselves as Palestinians. That's something else. There are Druze, Bedouin, Cherkessian. Um, there is a range of diversity and Human Rights Watch basically erases their identity and reduces everything to two peoples. Um, so that, that in and of itself was to me so offensive and frankly racist in my opinion. They, they claim to be fighting racism with this report but it's actually in my opinion a racist report. And there are other things racist in it we can probably get into in a little bit. Um, you know, of course the reality here is not apartheid. Um, that's a ridiculous charge. Um, what, I, what I find, um, you know, I, so I really even hesitate to get into the international law about it because basically what, um, what Human Rights Watch did, it, there, there is not a lot of international law on what apartheid is actually. So that's very important for people to know. There was a convention on apartheid, which is a treaty um, passed on in the 70s about what apartheid is. However, that and that and we have to really get into Cold War politics when we talk about this treaty because the Soviet Union essentially drafted this apartheid treaty to go after Western countries. So most Western countries did not sign this treaty. So it's it's can't be considered binding law in any way. Um, and then when you look at the International Criminal Court, the Rome Statute, um, many countries are not parties to the Rome Statute, so it's, it's not even binding. Israel is not a party to the Rome Statute. Um, so the extent that what you would say is customary law, there's never been any cases defining what apartheid is. So from a legal matter, it's actually not a simple question. Um, and Human Rights Watch knows that. They do not cite to any legal sources in its report. Um, they acknowledge that there are no legal cases and they acknowledge the only existing case of apartheid was South Africa, apartheid South Africa. And so really what HRW is doing here is they are inventing a standard to, to apply to Israel alone. Um, and, um, you know, when you're, and because the only case is South Africa, the other thing that they're doing is they're equating Israel to South Africa. And what was the remedy for apartheid South Africa? You eliminate the regime. So what Human Rights Watch is doing in this report is basically advocating for the elimination of Israel, the elimination of Israel as a homeland for Jews, 
um, and Jewish self-determination. So it, it's indefensible on any legal, moral, or factual grounds. Absolutely. And you hit on so many important points. Um, the racist elements are definitely there. I would say there's anti-Semitic elements. The report refers to this idea of Jewish domination that the Israeli government hopes to perpetuate throughout all of Israel and the territories. And that obviously feeds into the trope of Jewish world domination. And we can go on and on. Um, so thank you for all of that. Additionally, this report, as you alluded to, you've read so many reports prior, and this one stands out to you. But to contextualize it even more, this report comes three months after a publication by Israeli human rights watchdog Bet Selim, which also accused Israel of becoming an apartheid regime. And just weeks after the International Criminal Court announced it was launching, launching an investigation into alleged Israeli war crimes in the West Bank and Gaza during the summer of 2014. And the Human Rights Watch maintains that Israel has a stated goal to ensure Jewish Israelis maintain domination across Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory, which again, as you said, they apply loosely to Gaza and the West Bank with very little differentiation, if any, like no nuance. Um, so what would you say are the legal implications of this report in international law and how might the ICC or other international forums make use of this report to further implicate Israel? So I also, I, do, I think just before I answer those questions, I think it's also important to note um, another egregious thing that Human Rights Watch has done in this report is they have erased the Oslo Accords and the context of the peace process. I think that really has to be stated um, and explained in 1993 and 1995, Israel and uh, the Palestinians got together and they negotiated a series of agreements that basically were to give, set up the Palestinian government, the Palestinian Authority, with the ultimate goal that this would lead to the creation of a Palestinian state for in the near future. This was like the beginning steps of that. Um, they agreed together and they agreed to um, in this, these series of agreements, how the territory was to be governed. Now, Human Rights Watch erases all of that and they make it seem as if Israel is applying some, like you said, system of do Jewish domination over the territory when it, the way the territory is currently governed was agreed to by the Palestinians along with the Israelis. And not only that was guaranteed by the international community, including the United Nations, and the EU and the United States and many other countries. And that is completely missing from the report. So I think that's that's a critical um, thing to lay out. Um, now in terms of, of course, the purpose of this report is to be, they why, why is Human Rights Watch putting this report out? In these types of forums, you never know. I mean, anything can happen. They don't play by the same rules um, often. Um, but I think the other, the other way in this report will be used is there are a lot of nefarious actors of the United Nations who basically have an industry of pumping out anti-Israel reports. And of course, they're going to use this Human Rights Watch report to um, pad their own reports. And the idea is, oh, we're going to, the idea is, oh, we're going to have, you know, more and more UN reports making these egregious charges against Israel. And then the hope is that the ICC will pick it up because maybe the U basically what I call a kind of NGO laundering, you know, so basically the NGOs will make a claim, the UN will put it in a report, and then 
another court or body will take the UN report, um, not realizing it's a it's an NGO report. It's not like something that's been thoroughly vetted by the United Nations. Um, so the idea is that I, what HRW is hoping is that other courts or the ICC, the International Court of Justice, the other UN bodies will take the report and and just keep you know, generating this negative PR against Israel. And of course, the other thing is, and really where I think about the biggest impact is on college campuses, um, because the point is this bolsters the anti-Semitic BDS movement. Um, and that, and the guy who wrote it is a career BDS activist. And, and that's really his, um, the goal in the report. Absolutely. And thank you for contextualizing it even more, because it's important to think who's writing this report, who's going to use this report, in what ways is this report going to be used? So absolutely, I'm thankful that I'm newly graduated, but I do you know, feel bad for current college students who I already know they're um, justice for Palestine groups, um, depending on their belief system, might use this report and other reports to cite you know, Israeli apartheid to fuel their apartheid weeks that they have and things like that. So definitely important to realize how this report is going to be used. In addition to the 217 page report, the Human Rights Watch released videos and graphics titled Born Unequal, showing a physical depiction of two individuals for contrast, a visibly fair skinned looking woman meant to represent an Israeli and a dark skinned looking man meant to represent a Palestinian, such graphics make various claims and are, are an attempt to quote unquote, visualize Palestine. We alluded to this before, but to elaborate on it even, even further, what do you make of these representations and others that attempt to paint the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with the binaries of oppressed versus oppressor, as well as colonized versus white colonizer? I, I think you said it right there. Um, when I said it at the beginning, when I was talking about how they erased the ethnic diversity in Israel, I mean, that's, that's what those graphics are doing also. It's also the most, you know, that is the other most offensive piece about this report. I mean, anyone who's been to Israel knows the, the biggest ethnic group of Jews is actually Jews from Morocco in Israel. There's over a million Jews from Morocco. Um, of course, Jews are a Semitic people. And really the point of this report, I think it's, it's two things. Number one, it's trying to make and build off of what's been going on in the United States with um, Black Lives Matter and the conversations going around race right now in America. So they're using language of white supremacy to sort of paint Israel as a devil, really, you know, to equate Israel with white supremacists in order to, um, you know, create that association in people's minds, um, even though there's no equating the situations here with what's going on in the United States. Um, it's a very lazy analogy. Um, so that, that is the nefarious purpose of it. And then the other thing is, like you mentioned, it's basically to paint Jews as foreign colonizing alien implants to the region when we are native to this region, we are indigenous to this region. And they are seeking to try to erase again that historical connection of our people to the area. Um, and that's 100% what they're doing. Um, and they're trying to portray all Jews as white. Um, and besides, you know, they clearly don't know many Palestinians because there are quite a number of fair-skinned, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Palestinians also. So 
um, you know, but but that that was the purpose, you know. It, and uh, again, I, I just it's completely unjustifiable that a human rights group or you know supposed human rights group would would do something like this. I, it's it, yeah, like I said, it's indefensible, and and they should be called out on it. Absolutely, they should be called out on it because so many people will just see the title Human Rights Watch, won't think about potential bias, will read the report, will come out of it thinking Israel is this horrible country that just is racist against Palestinians, against Muslims, against Arabs, and all of that gets conflated. And then that's somebody's perception of Israel because why would an organization with the title humanrightswatch.org have such a bias or have such a nefarious agenda? And thank you so much for casting light to that because it's important to contextualize this report and to realize who the author is, what the purposes may be, to realize that there's a lot of misinformation there, deceptive information. So thank you so much, so much for your time. Before I let you go, are there any final thoughts about the report that we haven't touched on yet that you would like to share? Yeah, I, I would say two things. Number one, um, like you were just saying, I mean, really what they do is prey on people's ignorance because most people aren't familiar with the details. And so they're just gonna read that the headline or you know, maybe a couple pages of the summary and think, wow, that sounds really terrible without realizing that 90% of what is in that report is false or you know, distorted beyond, um, beyond reality. Um, so I think that's number one. Number two, it, what they erase is the, they erase Palestinian agency and they erase the steps that Israel has taken to end this conflict. There's no mention of the many peace offers dating back to, you know, before the state of Israel was even, um, you know, even created in 1948, um, you know, completely erasing that, the, the 2000 Camp David Accords, 2008 offers, the 2014 offers, the fact that Palestinians have refused to negotiate with Israel for over 10 years. They've never made a counter offer. Um, in 2000, Israel offered them more than 95% of the West Bank um, to have a, and to have a state in Gaza and the West Bank to build a land corridor between Gaza and the West Bank. Um, and for the remaining 5% to do land swaps with Israeli territory, all of that is completely missing. Um, and again, I think that just shows how dishonest this report is. Um, and, and I just encourage people, you know, that you can look at our website, there's other websites where they can really find the facts um, about how Human Rights Watch is, is really um, deceiving people. It's, it's a, in my opinion, it's a fraudulent report because it is, it is promoting so many false claims and half truths um, that it, it, no one can take it you know, as a credible report. And, and I will also say that uh, just as a closing matter, as all countries, every country in the world has issues with you know, minority rights and discrimination. Israel is not alone in this. Um, and, if it, and if Human Rights Watch had been an honest organization, they would wanna make constructive um, recommendations to improve policies. And I think the point of this report is it's not about improving policies. It doesn't matter what Israel does. The point of the report is to paint Israel as an illegitimate country 
Um, and for that reason, it, it's not worth the paper that it's printed on. Um, so <laughs> I think I'll leave it there. I agree with you and I like the closing remark. I don't think it's worth the paper that it's written on. Thank you again so much um, for all of our listeners. Again, that's Anne Herzberg. We are so lucky to have had her on the podcast. And now we're on to Jillian with our campus story. The Associated Students of Pomona College, or ASPC, unanimously passed a boycott, divestment, and sanctions resolution introduced by Claremont Students for Justice in Palestine and Claremont Jewish Voice for Peace last week. The resolution would redirect student government funds away from entities that, quote, knowingly support the Israeli occupation of Palestine. In addition, the resolution calls to cut future funds from campus organizations engaging with companies that, quote, support the Israeli occupation of Palestine or contribute to any companies on a UN Human Rights Council blacklist that includes 112 major Israeli and American companies. Student clubs that fail to comply with the boycott are at risk of losing ASPC funds, including Jewish groups like Hillel and Chabad. Claremont SJP praised the bill's passage as a historic BDS victory, releasing a statement that foregrounds this resolution as a first step to a, quote, consortium-wide agreement to ban clubs from using student government allocations to invest or purchase goods from companies that contribute to the Israeli state. With us today to discuss the latest developments on Pomona College campus is Janie Marcus and Chloe Boudreaux, co-presidents of Claremont's Progressive Israel Alliance. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you for having us. Janie, let's start with you. Your statement indicated that your organization would not comply with the boycott because it limits students' abilities to make choices of their own and unfairly singles out a specific demographic of students for its discriminatory policy. Can you talk a little bit about the climate on Pomona's campus surrounding Israel? How did this resolution come into fruition and what's your game plan moving forward to ensure that funding and programming for Jewish and pro-Israel students at Pomona continues? Yeah, of course. So the climate around Israel has not been great in, in recent years, not only at Pomona, but throughout the entire Claremont College's consortium. And to give a few examples, in 2018, Pitzer College tried to ban a study abroad program in Haifa. And last summer, the Pomona College senior class president posted some terrible anti-Semitic social media posts. So it's really no surprise that this resolution came into fruition. As for this particular bill, it seems like pro-Palestine clubs have been working for a while in secret on this bill. Myself and other Jewish students had no idea uh, this was even brought to the Senate floor, and we are really disappointed that we weren't consulted before the vote. Uh, and, you know, myself and Chloe are working really hard to make sure this bill doesn't get passed in its current form. The part of the bill that concerns us the most has to do with clubs losing funding who support Israel. So we're working with the administration, the Board of Trustees, and also student senators to combat this discriminatory policy. That's really good to hear. And, and you know, I, I, I feel like a lot of other students have kind of been in that similar experience where it just kind of comes out of nowhere and and you know it takes people by surprise but I'm, I'm glad to see that y'all are, are taking the steps to combat it. Um, Chloe, shortly after the resolution passed the Pomona College president G. Gabrielle Starr released a statement conveying concern that there was no opposing perspective represented before the unanimous vote in favor of the resolution. She also criticized the resolution's requirement of all student clubs supported by ASPC to participate in the boycott regardless of their views. 
what problems do you see with compelling students to participate in a boycott of Israel without adequate context, perspective, or choice? Beyond this cautious response from President Starr, what additional support would you like to see from your school's administration? Um, yeah, so I think there are many problems with this resolution. First of all, our student government took a highly partisan position, which we don't think at all they should be doing. And then student government should really represent all students in all beliefs, not just a particular fraction. Um, and by singling out a particular identity as they did, it forces all students to comply with the boycott. And to us, this really seems like a constraint on academic freedom and freedom of expression. Um, and addressing the second part of your question, you know, we are really grateful for President Starr's response condemning the bill. It, it was really nice to see that so fast after it was um, passed. But we know there's more the administration can do to ensure like, Jewish and pro-Israel students feel safe on our campus. And we really do hope that the administration takes these steps to ensure that the bill doesn't go into effect in its current form. That's great to hear. Um, so the last question I have is for, for both of you to answer. As students who are currently dealing with BDS on campus, what advice or words of encouragement would you offer to other students who may be navigating similar, similar resolutions at their schools? And also what tools and resources would you like to see on campuses going forward to ensure Jewish safety, freedom of speech, and constructive dialogue surrounding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? I think it's important to understand that there's so many resources for Jewish and pro-Israel students, you know, both in the community and outside of the community. Uh, these resources are willing to help students like us navigate these types of issues. So, you know, on campus, whether that's our college, Hillel or Chabad, professors, other student organizations, um, there's, there's a lot of people out there. And I don't think we, we realize that until, until right now, until this, until this event, uh, to understand that there are so many people willing to help us. Um, yeah, and moving forward with the tools, we would really like to see and just urge schools to adopt the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance working definition of anti-Semitism to, to show a commitment to addressing anti-Semitism on all campuses. I think this is like the next step moving forward at Pomona and we hope to see other schools doing this as well. That's great to hear. I'm really glad to see that, you know, you guys are going to take some some steps on your campus to, to deal with this issue. And, you know, we appreciate and I'm sure a lot of pro-Israel and Jewish students appreciate y'all doing that. Um, so, again, thank you so much for joining us, Janie and Chloe. That's it for Ready, Set, Israel's campus update. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much to everybody for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode powered by Hasbro Fellowships and make sure to follow us at Ready Set Israel on all of our social media platforms to keep up with the latest news about our podcast. Until next Thursday, that's Ready Set Israel.